Our scripture reading today is Mark chapter 7, chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. This is God's word. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. We have been... uh, for this time, we have been walking through a book, and we need the Lord's help as we come to His Word, that He would be our teacher. So pray with me, Lord, now as we read Your Word and look to it, would You fill us with Your Spirit? Would You soften our hearts that we may delight in Your presence? Would you open our ears that we might hear your voice and loose our tongues that we might declare your glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's the Gospel of Mark. We're walking uh, through this episode by episode, page by page, story by story. It's, it comes to us, as you may recall, from the hand of a man named Mark. Mark, who <clears throat> was... Um, was an eyewitness of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we believe. He belonged to a founding family of the Christian church. He was a companion of Peter and Paul and quite a compelling storyteller. We've seen that and we see it again today. We come to a fascinating episode that uh, addresses something of that reality that we live in a broken world. And into that broken world comes one with his presence and with promise. That's what we find in this passage today. You know, the Bible is continually and consistently realistic about the the reality of a fallen world. It doesn't, the Bible never glosses over it. It never spins it. It never calls it something else or asks you to. But the fallenness and the misery and the agony that you know firsthand or have known in your past or will in your future is accounted for and it's addressed by the Word of God. That should give us some hope. That should give us a place to stand and a way to to navigate our way through that very agony, that misery. And that's what we find today. The Bible is realistic. There's a man named Stephen Garber who has worked for years for the Washington Institute. And one of the things he does most is talk about Christian vocation. But he's a keen observer. He's not talking about that when he writes about this. He writes about agony. 
and the reality of it in our world. He writes, there's enough sorrow in the world to make us wonder at the weight of the wounds that we see and hear and feel all day long, every week of our lives. Be still for a moment and think about it. And when I did, I thought about the news that I received from a college friend who two weeks ago was diagnosed with a very severe and it turns out extensive cancer. I thought about the stories that I know that you have told of some of your tragic stories. I thought about the unexpected deaths and funerals that we have attended. I thought about miscarriages. Garber writes, sometimes it seems like it doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. And if it isn't, he says, the finality of death in its starkness that overwhelms us, then think again about the rest of life, the brokenness of the ordinary that everyone lives with, the disappointments and griefs that make us sigh and sigh again, knowing our frailty as we do, knowing the frailty of the world all around us. He's described the fact that it's not simply the tragic crisis There is much in the ordinariness of our life that fall into the category of different degrees and durations and levels of misery. But what we find in this passage is that you can face it. You can face the agony, the misery, regardless regardless of the degree and the duration because there's something true about Christ who comes into this with you. We're going to consider that today and see it. And as, we've, as we're learning or even learning to expect, there is a story underneath the story. There's a narrative before us that's compelling and intriguing and puzzling, perhaps. But underneath that is another story which we will get to. But we're going to go about this passage. We're going, to, we're going to look at the ways of God, the heart of God, the hands of God, and the purposes of God. And just as I was rattling that off, you may be asking the question, well, where is God in this passage? Or if you got past that question because you've been with us, you may be asking, does God really have hands? I mean, does God really have hands? Well, I'm going to propose to you that God is in this passage and that he does have hands in this sense. And I'm taking these words from Jesus' lips, who in another gospel says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And the Apostle Paul writing to describe and capture the life and ministry of this God-man says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So for today, God has hands. And we're going to see them in action in the God-man. We're going to start, though, with the ways of God. The ways of God, I want to suggest to you, are sometimes, if not often, curious. Now, I'm not yet talking about this miracle. But the ways of God are sometimes curious. 
And you would agree if you had a map in front of you right now. <laughs> because in this first verse, verse 31, we read that, that Jesus is going from Tyre through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, what would strike you if you had a map or a GPS directing the route to go from Tyre to Decapolis, your GPS would not take you through that region. In fact, it's the opposite direction. Jesus goes north to go south. Have you got any stories like that in your life, uh, that, the, that the route that God has taken you on, that, like Jesus does his disciples, goes what is apparently way out of the way, in the wrong direction even, in order to arrive somewhere else? You might suppose, well, it's a little bit like going from Franklin to Atlanta by way of Louisville. That's the picture. It's a big horseshoe shaped. It was 120 miles, so that, that map is off a bit. It was 120 miles, but it was by foot. 120 miles by foot in the wrong direction. And you got to suppose, as the disciples have determined, figured out that they're now going south again, and they're going to Decapolis, and they pass a sign when they get near. They pass the sign that says Decapolis this way. They've got to, one of them had to look at the other and say, why, why did we go that way to go this way when, when this was the straight line? I mean, the fact is, Jesus takes them in the wrong direction. We're not told why. We can speculate why, and we can draw a conclusion. You know, it wasn't long after what happens here that Peter determines and declares that Jesus is the Christ. They went 120 miles the wrong way to land where they did. Maybe it was, as we read in Mark 3, that they might be with him. Maybe that they just might be with him. They were with him for a 120-mile journey, and there were things said, there were things observed, there were questions raised and questions answered. But maybe it was time with him which raises a question. Is that what your curious itinerary is all about? Those not-so-straight lines in your own story, are those crooked lines or horseshoe itineraries, have they been about you being in the presence of Christ and with Him? i got a hunch that oftentimes that is the case. I can tell you, and can some other time, aspects of my own story where that was really true. There was, I will say this, there were, I spent six months sitting on our screened-in back porch having no idea what was next. Six months. You've got stories that are longer than that. <laughs> but something about this circuitous route is something of God's way with us that is often curious, not always explained, but ultimately beneficial and ultimately good if along that route we have spent time with him. God's ways are sometimes curious. We also see here that his, God's heart, the heart of God, is moved by our misery. 
verse 32. There's a group of men, apparently, a group of friends. It doesn't, it doesn't say they're male. A group of friends brought a man to be in the presence of Jesus, and they begged Jesus to, for him to lay his hands on him. That's what we read. That was a blessing. That was how a blessing was pronounced. It may be that that's all they had in mind. Jesus, would you pronounce a blessing over this? They were in for a surprise as the story unfolds, but they brought a man. And, and one of the things that we're to pay attention to is how Jesus responds to that. And we're going to learn something about the heart of God by the way Jesus responds. And he responds to a man in a certain condition. Now, that's where we need to start. The man is described as, as one who was deaf. Most likely from disease or injury, maybe from birth. We learn later that he also had a speech impediment. He could hardly talk, is the way the NIV puts it. Thick-tongued is what the word means. Um, I, ha I grew up with a, a childhood friend when we moved to Nashville when I was 10 years old. One of my neighbors was deaf. Uh, he could read lips very well. He talked with a thick tongue. And part of it, part of the reason for that, was that he never knew what the words were supposed to sound like rolling off of his lips. I, I learned to appreciate his effort, and it took some effort. It took, it took a lot more of his effort than mine. <laughs> he had to read my lips. And I had to, to, to understand his thick tongue. But the reality was, there was a condition that he was in that he could not remedy. If you had to choose between being deaf or blind, what would you choose? Listen to what Kent Hughes says about this. Being deaf, that handicap, was indeed terrible. Especially in ancient times, if we were given the choice between blindness and deafness... The idea of losing our hearing does not seem nearly as debilitating as losing our vision. But medical authorities and the deaf themselves tell us otherwise. Terrible as blindness is, and that was my choice, terrible as blindness is, the blind do not suffer the social pain and stigma experienced by the deaf. The gawking, impatient stares of those who are not aware of one's condition. And also the humiliation of being thought stupid because one cannot understand. You know, a deaf person doesn't look deaf. And that's the way we treat them, as if they do hear and should hear and should respond. And when they don't, they are in a predicament that according to medical authorities and the deaf themselves, has a level of pain and misery that the blind do not endure. I never thought about that. I'm still thinking about that. But Jesus saw it and understood it. You see, Jesus never saw a nobody. He saw someone created in the image of God and his heart goes out. That's where this story begins. <clears throat> the ways of God are sometimes curious. The heart of God is moved by our misery. 
A number of us have benefited recently from making our way through a book entitled Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I spoke about that when we had a chance, a few of us, to talk about the books we had read during COVID. Listen to what Dane Ortland says about this misery. Whatever your misery level duration is, our misery causes his love to surge forward. Jesus moves toward our misery, not away from it. In Christ, we're given a friend who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. The Bible takes us by the hand and leads us out from under the feeling that God's heart for us wavers according to our loveliness. Whether that has to do with sin or misery like this man's. It's not because we are lovely, attractive, compelling, with potential. It's because we're created in the image of God. And the misery that we endure in this world and experience, regardless of the level or the degree or the duration, that misery, friends, causes Jesus to move toward you. Uh, Thomas Goodwin is another one cited by Dane Ortland, an English pastor in the 17th century, who writing about 2 Corinthians 1, where we read about a father of mercies, says, there is no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies of every kind. This man has a particular misery and a particular need that Jesus moves to as the hands of God, the Father of mercies, with a particular mercy for him. But just as he has moved toward this man, we're on solid ground when we say that's exactly how he moves toward you. Whatever your level of mercy and misery Whatever your level of mercy need and your misery is, the Lord Jesus, the hands of God, moves toward you, not away from you, because you are lovely and you are His. Well, that's the heart of God. The hands of God actually reveal that heart, don't they? The hands of God reveal his heart and his power. This man has been simply a face in the crowd up until this point. And when he is brought before Jesus, as Jesus around the edges of the crowd, sometime, somehow he appears in his presence. And what does Jesus do? Did you notice that? Look at verse 33. He took him, taking him aside from the crowd privately. Now, Jesus didn't always do that, did he? Uh, remember the woman that reached for his robe? That was right in the middle. But Jesus takes this man away from the crowd privately for some reason. One commentator suggests, well, it was either to avoid hostile unbelief, which was often what was around. These, this crowd assembled. We don't know if it's Jew or Gentile. We know it was in Gentile territory. But we don't know... Who made up the crowd? We're not told that. <clears throat> but maybe it was to avoid that fury and unbelief that was hostile toward him. It could be. 
It may be that he was simply looking for unwanted publicity, trying to avoid unwanted publicity. Jesus is frequently doing that, right, in the Gospels. In fact, he does it in this one a little later on. After the miracle, he does point in that direction. Or maybe it was to avoid making a spectacle of the man before gawking onlookers. I got to think that was at least part of it. The, the commentator suggests maybe it was all three. And it could be. Another commentator says, regardless of the reason, he is alone with Jesus. Removed from the excitement and the distraction of the crowd, his eyes watch Jesus now, and he understands that Jesus is about to do something for him. Taking him away, maybe by the hand, out of the crowd, he anticipates that Jesus is going to do something. This wasn't on the schedule. And now he's being pulled away from the crowd for some reason. You know, the hand of God in our lives at times may be disruptive or harsh. There are parts of my story and yours that feel where we could describe the hand of God being disruptive or, or harsh. Whatever it takes. Here, the hands of God are shown to be restorative and tender. We're about to see that. But I want you to remember that whether the, the hands that are tender, that were harsh there, are tender. It's the same hands. It's the same God. And he meets us where we are and deals with us as he needs. That is for our good and his glory. He will grab me by the scruff of the neck at times. <laughs> Gently, in love, purposefully. But these are hands that are restorative and tender that we see. What we see as this story unfolds in verse 33, we see what, what we might even describe as sign language to this deaf, mute man. He does things to communicate to this man. He meets him on his terms, so to speak. He says to himself, I know you can't hear my voice and understand my words, but here's what's about to happen. And he takes his fingers. Picture this now. He takes his fingers and places them in the man's ears. We've gone to a level of intimacy there, right? That wasn't there before. And you know, you can't do that. You can't put your fingers in someone else's ears without being face to face. So in this moment, however long this moment took, and it doesn't appear to have taken long, this man's attention is riveted on Jesus. You can suppose there's some eye contact. Fingers in the ears as a way of saying, I am going to deal with the misery that you, are, you have experienced, that you endure. It is your ears. That's why we're here. That's why I'm here. That's why I've taken you aside to deal with your greatest felt misery, which also now includes your tongue. So taking at least one hand from his ears, spitting on that hand, and placing it on the man's tongue, we've gone to another level of intimacy, friends. <laughs> Fingers in the ears. A wet, spitful hand touching his tongue. That's, a, that's troubling for us to think about. 
But it's his way of saying, I'm here to undo the greatest trouble. You think that's troubling. I'm here to deal with your greatest trouble. That is, your, the brokenness in your life and the misery and the shame and the contempt that you have felt, I'm here to deal with. And then he does something else. Did you notice what he does next? He glances to heaven. He glances upward as if to make sure it's clear to this man that what is about to happen is comes from the Father above who cares about you. That's where the power comes from. That's also where the love resides. And it's in his name. It's, it's he who comes to you in this moment. But he does one more thing. He sighs. And we're not told why. But we could suppose that it had something to do with coming, coming to terms again with the brokenness of this world. The despair and the agony and the misery that marks life in this world. You know, when God made this world, it was declared not only good, it was declared very good, right? Genesis 1, each day is good, good, good. The summary, it was very good. But it hasn't been good, very good since Genesis 3. And Jesus is taking all of that into account. That of the fallenness and the brokenness and the meltdown and the breakdown and the catastrophes that go, the consequences of sin and brokenness in this world have to do with the world, the fact that this world is not what it was made to be. It's not what it will be, but here we are in the midst of this one. And Jesus sighs. And then he says something. In Aramaic, it's ephatha. It almost sounds like a thick-tongued word, doesn't it? When you read it on the page, but it simply means be opened. And those, and those syllables were the first syllables for this man to hear. Be opened. And as he heard those, not only were his ears open, but it says his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Not thick tongue, but he spoke plainly. And I got to wonder, and maybe you do too, I got to wonder, what did he say? What did he say? Who are you? Was it, uh, how did you do that? Why me? There's all kinds of things that could have come to my lips in, in wonderment and amazement. We're told that everybody around was astonished beyond belief, starting with him. <laughs> but so, he responded in some way. His tongue was loosed for some purpose, and something came off of his lips. I'd just love to know. We're not told. What we are told is that it was, a, it was complete. His ears were opened. His tongue was released. He spoke plainly. And what we learn from that, friends, is that when God shows up in our, midst, in our misery, when the heart of God and the hands of God show up, He comes with more than sympathy. He comes with love and power to do for us what we cannot do to mend our own ways and to fix the miseries in our lives.
Now, you should have some questions at this point. Because Jesus actually did not heal everyone that he ran into. His words were, don't talk about this, not go find everybody else in this condition and line them up. And one of the reasons for that is the story underneath the story. I told you there's a story underneath the narrative, and we're about to get to that. We could seal this little story off by itself, and it's a beautiful story, it's a, it's, but it's perplexing in the manner that Jesus chose to do this. And why he did it and not here and not everywhere. Those are legit questions. And they get answered when you begin to understand not only what Jesus said or what he was doing, but what he had in mind. Here's where we see that the purpose of God is unfolding, but certain. The purpose of God is unfolding, but uncertain. Here's, here again what Jesus said. He charged them not to speak about what they had witnessed. He's frequently doing that, it seems. And it's because he knows that right around the corner is the rest of his mission. And what's around the corner has to deal not only with this man's need, but everyone else's need and everyone else's misery. And all the misery that was and is and will be. The mission around the corner is much, 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 much bigger than, than this marvelous miracle that raises our question and causes us to be astonished. It's much bigger than that. That's what he said. So he said, don't, and he charged them repeatedly. He said it once, he said it again, and apparently more than twice, and they continue to talk. But he's insistent that they should sit on this news for the moment because he had something else around the corner where he was headed. We also get a picture that that the purpose of God is unfolding because there's more going on at this moment in Jesus' life than this episode. And we see this, as we learned last week, in the parallel passage in Matthew 15, we don't find this story. We find a a wider sweep of what God is doing in, in this category. And in Matthew 15, you would read these words. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them so that the crowd wondered Remember that word. The crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. That was the bigger picture. This is simply an episode in a bigger picture of what Jesus was doing in his public ministry at that time. There was a lot going on. There was a lot going on that taps in to the story beneath the story. I keep saying that, and here it is. When you run across this word that Mark used to describe this man, he said he was deaf, but he also said he was what? Mute or tongue-tied or thick-tongued, to use the Greek word. The Greek word that he chose there is magalalos. 
It takes a thick tongue to say that. Magalalas. And, and that's the word that he used to describe. But here's what's important. That word only appears one other time in all of Scripture. It's not in the parallel passage. It's not in the New Testament. It's in Isaiah 35. Which begins like this. The Greek translation of Isaiah 35 should note. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. He's describing the day of the Lord. And that Lebanon, that's Tyre and Sidon. That's describing the journey that they've just been on. Now they've landed in the Decapolis and they come across a, 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 a man who cannot speak except with tied tongue. And we read this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap, leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The mute, the thick-tongued, the, one, the man that we've run into in Mark 7, only other occasion referred to in Isaiah 35. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The restoration of speech to Magilalos signals something. It signals what Isaiah is describing. It signals the promised arrival of the day of the Lord. The ministry that Jesus is performing that is what Isaiah promised would occur, and it's happening in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' unusual actions in this Gentile region indicate or reveal that he is the Lord come to restore the image of God in humanity. By what? By opening ears and loosening tongues. Ha. <laughs> It's an unmistakable link that we don't get unless we've read and understand the story underneath the story in Isaiah 35. You see, but here's the rest of that. Isaiah 35 is essentially the last chapter in a long block in Isaiah that is filled with the judgment of God upon the nations. That's what Isaiah is talking about for, the, for 35 chapters. 35. Judgment on the nations. Oh, by the way, including judgment on Tyre and Sidon. <laughs> but when we get to chapter 35, we see this man. And when we get to Mark 7, we see that God has come, just as Isaiah promised, but without divine retribution mentioned and tied to Isaiah 35. He comes into this and he brings not condemnation and not judgment. He brings a restorative love. How can he do that? How can he jump to the restorative love? How can he skip over 35 chapters of Isaiah and come with restorative love? It's because what's around the corner. Because what's around the corner is the reality in the picture that we will mark on Good Friday that Jesus has come not to bring retribution, 
but to bear it for us. Tim Keller rightly, helpfully notes, Jesus was silent before his accusers. He became mute so that our tongues could be loosed to call him king. They were astonished beyond belief. And right now, so am I. The kingdom of God breaking in always has that impact. When when we get a window into the kingdom of God and the reality before us, it propels us to something that we might call astonishment and wonder. That's what Habakkuk expected. Listen to these words, Habakkuk 1. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And that's the very passage the Apostle Paul takes up in Acts 13, describing the crucifixion and the resurrection. He says, you would not believe it, you scoffers in this case. You scoffers, look at what's going on. A work of God in your midst. You would be astounded if you understood what was happening in the, in the resurrection of Christ, a work in your days that you would not believe if told. His crucifixion, his resurrection prompts that in us, right? We're prompted to wonder at his miracles, whatever they are, whatever form they take, whatever misery they're dealing with. And that while not all of our misery in this world, that's a question that should, you should ask. While not all of the misery in this world has been obliterated and dealt with and demolished and substituted for with joy and goodness and blessing and and healing. Not everyone with cancer is healed. There will be tragic accidents and deaths in the year to come. But in the midst of that, our perspective is shifted it is, it is di- directed in a new direction to recognize that the agonies and the miseries in this world, the result of the fall and the consequences of, of, of everything that goes with a world that is broken may be, may be the very things that if Jesus doesn't decide to, with his hands, heal and restore in this moment to know that he will and to know that in the meantime your attention my attention is riveted on him that may be what the curious paths in your life have been about it may be what whatever degree of misery you endure or will are about Letting the one who made this world, in a sense, reposition your head to the degree that you are face to face with the realities of who he is. Because it's only there that you begin to understand not only misery in its context, in its short lifespan. To know that there is a joy beyond joy in the world to come, but that world has broken into this one. And we do get glimpses. We do get a window 
into the world to come in this one. Maybe it's simply putting ourselves in the shoes of a man who could not speak, who could not hear, until Jesus shows up. There's two takeaways. If all this is true, and I believe that it is, let it melt you. You know, we find instances throughout the four Gospels and Acts of astonishment without faith. People are amazed at what this man does and is doing. They're curious. They want to know more. But without faith. But we never find genuine faith without astonishment. And I invite you to that. The astonishment that Jesus is drawn by your misery, not repelled by it. That he comes to you as one made in the image of God, full of dignity. And he fills you with that dignity and joy, knowing that you are his and that he is at work. And there is a world to come that has broken into this one. This story is not finished. And yes, misery and brokenness and agony are real, but they are not barriers. They are never barriers to his love. And the promise that if not fulfilled now, will one day be. Maybe the ways of God, those curious ways, are in order that you would be with him. Or maybe they're shaped in such a way that you might rivet your attention upon him because he comes to you face to face, so to speak, even today. Lord, would you turn our gaze to you? Thank you that you are honest and you now allow us to be honest about misery and disappointment, whether crisis or ordinary. With those rumblings of our heart that long for healing and relief and restoration lead us to you. And we trust in your goodness and your promises to, to open up the world to come in your time and in your ways. Thank you that you have broken in. And with the resurrection, we see the evidence of that world to come. The making of all things new has begun. So we reach toward you to take hold of that work, that love, those hands, and that heart. Hear our prayer. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.